The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Lookout. I add my welcome to Frank's and just thankful for that beautiful sacrament this morning. We get to participate in and remember that we are washed um, by the blood of the Lamb. That's beautiful. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into our study this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for that picture. And I thank you for the ways that you have bound yourself to us in love. And you have made our salvation sure and secure, as sure as that water touches the head. So I pray this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word from this beautiful passage and allow me to not be in the way, but the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your precious name we pray, amen. So I, can, I wonder if you can remember a time where you've been sitting in a class, maybe listening to a coach or an instructor, maybe in a sermon, listening to a pastor, and you're, you're there and you're listening and it's something really important is probably being said, but your eyes slowly start to glaze over, start to lose focus maybe just a little bit and wander off into the unknown recesses of your head and begin to ponder those important questions like, why do we drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? And these things are just entering your head and then all of a sudden you hear, listen up. And it snaps you back in. Like, and, you, and you hear something like, this is important. If you haven't been listening, you're going to want to hear this. That's how our passage starts this morning. Moses literally says, listen up, hear, O Israel. This is important. You don't want to miss what I'm about to say. So the Israelites call this passage the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. They considered it so important that they prayed it every day. Every day they woke up and they prayed this verse over their life, over their hearts, over their minds, the Shema. In fact, there's still some Jewish communities that do this today. So it's recognized as the centerpiece of Deuteronomy. 
Uh, it summarizes all of the Ten Commandments. Jesus was masterful at simplifying things. And he says, this summarizes what I'm trying to say to you. In fact, I was like, this is the most important passage, and I feel like this sermon's a little simple. And I was like, but I think that's the point. That's the point. This is the heart of the Christian faith. It's the, exp- it's the foundation for the explanation of all the law Moses is about to give. So this is, this is central to this book. Then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the story of when scribes are asking Jesus lots and lots of questions, and one asks him, teacher, what is the most the most important commandment of all. And Jesus answered, the most important is, and almost verbatim says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And you know what the the scribe said to Jesus after that? He says, you're right. That that was right, Jesus. (laughs) So we're all in agreement that uh, this is the most important passage for us. Uh, But think about what that means. I wonder if you've prayed or cried out to God lately, like, what what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Am, Am I supposed to be this busy? Am I focused in the right places? Like, what are the most important, what is the most important thing, Lord, to do with my time? He says, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He answers it clearly. See, the Israelites were on the doorsteps of the promised land, and it says, with stubborn unwillingness, they had not entered in yet. They were, uh, they had made every effort to avoid the fight. They're probably thinking like, God, can't you just do that Jericho thing where we walk around and yell and it's all over? Like, I'll be honest, I... I'm tired of fighting my sin. I grow weary. I don't want to engage that fight. It's exhausting at times. And I'm like, God, can't you just end this? Deuteronomy 6 are the words that Moses gives to a people who are weary of fighting. To a people who are scared of what the future will hold if they follow him. To a stubborn people And these are the words, he says, to give them courage to believe God's promise and enter the fight. But Moses also wants sustainability. So he wants them to enter God's promise. He wants them to stay there. He wants them to thrive in the full promise of God. So right after this, verses 10 and 12, Moses says this, when the Lord carries you in to great and good cities that you didn't build, House is full of all good things that you didn't fill. Cisterns you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. When you are in that place, the Lord has given you. And he says, when you eat and are full, right there, take care that you do not forget the Lord. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He says, you're gonna live in blessing. You're gonna be in cities and homes you didn't build or plant. You're gonna eat and be full. And that's when you will be in danger, forgetting the Lord your God who loves and delivers and calls you. 
It says, lest we forget. So wherever we are this morning, maybe you're asking, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life and my time? Maybe you're just saying, I am so tired of fighting this and I just want it to be over. Maybe we've forgotten the God who loved us. Maybe we had a really full weekend or week or decade and we've forgotten the Lord, our God who loved us. Wherever we are this morning, God's word for all of us, I believe, is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So we're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to, this is in your bulletin, we'll look at it as the mandate for complete devotion to the one true God. And then we're going to look at the method that it reveals for living out complete devotion to the one true God. So let's look at verse 4 and 5. Remember, Moses says, listen up, head up. And Jesus takes his highlighter out and says, this is the most important thing. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. So, I don't know if you heard that. Before Moses gives a command, he actually, uh, before he asks us to completely devote ourselves to God, he reminds us who God is. He reminds us of who we are, what, what God is like. So he balances the command with the character of God. There's only one single and supreme God. Therefore, love him with all your being. Our God is worthy of complete devotion. So verse four points out two things. One is our relationship and the other is the reality of who God is. Hear, O Israel. So verses three and four, Moses uses this name twice. Israel, their covenant name. He's reminding them that you have a unique and special relationship with God. He has bound himself covenantally to you in love. He's bound by his love, not by who you are. Remember the covenant God initiated with you. Isn't that not amazing that God has covenanted with you? That he's bound himself to you by his love? And we know that he says he does not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously with him give us all things? So the reminder number one, each morning, as they said the Shema, the first thing they think, our God is for us. He has already done all we can ask or imagine. While we were still sinners, he made us his children. That's our God. That's our relationship with God. But then Moses points out the reality of who God is, his character. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen to what Raymond Brown says. He says, the Lord is one. He is the only God they can love. There are no others. The Lord here reminds them of his uniqueness. There are no rivals. To love other gods is to pursue nothing. They don't exist. He's the one and only Lord. So the reason that's important is it goes back to our study of the second commandment. Um, I think that was in January. The Israelites are about to enter Canaan. There's hundreds of false gods that have been created to, to uh, deal with our desires and to deal with our fears. So we've created gods that we can control for our fear of war, our fear of death, our fear of not being in love, our fear of of not having money. All these things, there's God's created for every one of them so we can have leverage. I'm gonna repeat a quote Andy Crouch said about false gods. He said, every idol is an attempt to gain an edge on the world, to have some leverage over chaos. 
Idolatry is an attempt to have some sort of leverage over the uncontrollable. Why? Because we value that thing more than God. Whether it is financial success or love or peace, we trust that it can heal our hearts more than God. It will give more meaning to our life than God himself. So Moses knows they're going to be tempted to seek meaning and healing from somewhere else. What are we trusting will heal our hearts? What are we seeking for meaning in our lives? So reminder number two each morning as they repeat the Shema is the reality there's one God. There is no other. But he promises to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's planned and secured your hope and your future, the healing of your hearts. The meaning of our lives is found in God alone. So Moses first reminds us of our relationship with God, and then he reminds us the reality of who he is. He's for us and not against us. So verse four shows us the Lord who's worthy of our complete devotion. Then verse five shows us what does a worthy response to this God look like? It's to love God with all our heart, soul, and might. The only fitting response to the worthy Lord who loves and rescues is to love him with all of our being. So one theologian defines love as this. Allegiance, action, and affection in all things. Allegiance, action, and affection in all things. So at the center of the Christian faith is love for the God who first loved us. It affects every ounce of our being. Our allegiances begin to change. They're shifted. God actually moves ahead of things that we once would never have set aside before. The Lord takes first position and everything else becomes secondary. You ever seen someone lay aside something they've loved for so long and it just isn't as interesting anymore because their relationship with the Lord is growing and thriving and and takes precedent in that. It changes our allegiances. But love also changes our actions. We obey the one that we trust. Love involves trust. So Dallas Willard says this, the idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving Christian culture. He says this, in fact, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him then you can trust your doctor and your auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. If you don't intend to follow their advice, you simply don't trust them, period. Love includes allegiance and actions and trust, but it also includes our affections and our emotions. So imagine, imagine this marriage proposal. It goes like, well, I've been running some spreadsheet numbers some simple formulas based on my recent allegiances and actions, it appears there's a 92% probability that I love you. Therefore, I would like to propose eternal covenantal marriage to you. (laughs) But do you love me? (laughs) Does your heart wake up when you see me? Like, does does your mind think about me when I'm not there? Love involves affection and emotions, allegiance and actions in all things. But I think that's why Moses starts the Shema by reminding them that God has covenanted with them. 
God is their God. He is for them, not against them. And he does this because we can't generate this kind of love ourselves. Love for God that he is calling us to comes from God himself, from who he is. When we see God as he really is, it engages the heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's look quickly at the last section, verses 6 through 9. Moses says, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So these verses show us the method for complete devotion to the one true God. So the first thing he says, the word of God should be on our heart. And that's a command. That's a directive. And that's, that's something that doesn't only happen to us, but it's something that we participate in to put the word of God in our heart. The psalmist say, I've hidden your word in my heart. That means I've seen it, I've studied it, I've meditated on it, I've applied it to my life. I've hidden it in there. God's word telling us who he is, what he's done. That's, what, that's how we set love into our hearts. And it's a love that does change allegiance, action, and affection. God's word heals our hearts. It is a primary way that our love begins to grow stronger and look more like his every day. And we know this, right? We talk about what we love. So in youth ministry, I, I encourage our leaders as they come in and interns and volunteers of like, the way to get to know someone, the way to build a relationship is to find out what they love. Find out what fills their heart. And I've been in 30 years of ministry and, and I've had so many of those conversations that are like, nope, yep, yes, sir, no, sir. You're like, what's going on? And then you, you find the thing that holds their heart and the eyes light up. And if you're interested in that too, you can't stop the flow of words that comes after that. They become animated. They begin to pour out. People love to talk about what they love. It's deep in us when you find what's in their heart. Because it's for out of the heart, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Our hearts are filled with an abundance from what we put our attention on. Do you know someone whose eyes light up when they talk about the Lord? You know someone whose eyes light up when they get to share something God's been teaching them? They've written the word on their heart. It's shaped the way they, what they love, what they celebrate. That's the invitation for us, that we would fill our hearts with the truth of Scripture. It would be written on our heart. But then the passage says that the truth of Scripture is impressed within the family. saying, pass these on to the children of the church. Pass these truths on to spare them the tragedy of worshiping something that isn't real, something that isn't true, that doesn't love them back, something that doesn't heal their hearts. R.C. Sproul said this, he says, I don't know how many times I've heard parents who are members of churches say to me, I intentionally never discuss theology or religion with my children because I want them to believe whatever they come to believe honestly and not because they've been indoctrinated by us in the home. I don't want them to be slaves to a parental tradition. I want them to experience reality on its own terms and come to whatever conclusion they draw from the evidence. So if you've ever been a victim of theology that's completely absent of love, 
you probably understand where that's coming from. But the reality is, we are always teaching our kids about what we love. Always. From the moment they're born, we throw a onesie on them with our favorite sports team. And we prop a football against them in the crib. And we're taking pictures like future running back or, you know, forward for the team. And we are like talking about, man... As they're growing up, remember the 85 pumpkin bowl? I was watching it with my dad and it was three seconds left. We were down by two and we're like telling them the whole history of our love relationship with this team and telling them its story. We get in the car and we're, we're putting on a song. Listen to this song. I was at this concert. Tears are filling our eyes as we're talking about this pop band from the 70s, right? Like we're sharing what we love. I took my son to dinner last night. My favorite restaurant, my favorite meal. I bought one for him and one for me. And the whole time I'm like, is this not amazing? Is this not incredible? At the end I was like, if I ever get to meet this chef, I'm going to hug them and kiss them on the cheek and thank them for the joy they bring in my life. Part of it was when we got there, it wasn't on the menu. You had to ask for it and I was like, no. So I panicked that I'd lost this thing that I love. But we're always sharing what we love. And we don't talk about the things that are not on our hearts. That's what this passage is about. It makes clear that it is not a cold, disconnected indoctrination. It is an open-hearted, ongoing conversation through all of the daily moments. It's an overflow of the mind's affections. So practically... What's exciting about this is that it actually looks a lot like what we're doing in our normal day-to-day -day life. Listen to this song from the 70s. Listen to this verse I read this morning. Listen to this podcast or sermon I heard. Like, have I ever told you about when I trusted Christ? No. I've told you about the pumpkin bowl 23 times and I haven't told you about when I trusted Christ? Let me tell you that story. It looks like that, this overflow of the heart as it's fixed on who Christ is in our lives. One pastor said it like this. We are not only to speak of beliefs and behaviors, but also of our own experience of God. We must be open about our struggles to grow, transparent about how repentance works in our lives. We're not to be overly formal and impersonal in the expressions of our faith. He says, but youth are turned off not only by bad examples, but also by parents who don't understand the lives and world their children are living in or who cannot be open about their own interior spiritual lives. So I've heard so many beautiful examples from students. As, as our kids go through the youth ministry as seniors, often maybe they'll share a minute or here or there. And so many of their stories are filled with my grandmother texted me this verse one time when I was going through a hard thing. A parent sat down and shared this with me or prayed this verse over me. And it's these, these quiet moments of just, here's what I'm praying on you. Here's something I was thinking about and I'm, I'm, I'm praying that for you today. Like those moments sit in our kids' lives. And that's the picture that we have in this. And I don't think this is just parental. It's our role as adults to share who God is with the next generation. So Barna did a study on students as they leave high school and go off or they enter a vocation or go to college and he studied students whose faith actually begins to thrive and carry on. 
and he found five things that are major indicators and influencers of that. Two of those are that they have a strong relationship, a meaningful relationship with an adult in the church. And the other one is that they've heard from adults how they live out their faith in their vocation. They've heard us talk about who Christ is and how we live our lives, how we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, strength, vocation. That's the most meaningful thing in the passing on of faith. So the passage ends by saying, bind God's word to your hands and between your eyes, doorposts of your house and city gates. So I looked it up. There actually is no font that is legible when it's this close to your face. So I don't think he means write the Shema on your forehead. So what is he saying? I want you to think of hand-eye coordination. What is hand-eye coordination? The ability to make your actions align with your vision. Isn't that great? Like, let them see your actions aligned with your vision. Hand-eye coordination, spiritual hand-eye coordination. The best way to pass on faith to children or peers is for our actions to align with our vision and what we believe and what we claim is true about the Lord. So the last verse says, let these words be on the doorpost of your home and your city gates. And I think that just simply means, let the word of God guide your coming and your going. Let this be a vision over our lives. May our lives be lived by the vision to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. So I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'm going to ask the Lord to make this so for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is all summed up in this passage that we would love the Lord our God, the God who first loved us, who has covenanted with us, who has bound himself to us by his love. Father, you are good. It is good to be your children. Would you put your love more and more in our hearts and we might run after you in the freedom of your commands. I ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.